This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Hi, everybody. Hope you're having a great Wednesday, as great as can be given the state of the world. Um, we are super, super lucky to have with us today a leader in a national leader in the criminal justice and a fight for what some might call criminal justice reform, what some might call a freedom struggle. Some people uh, talk about abolition of incarcerated people. Um, but Zachary Norris has been working on these issues for several decades. We're really lucky to have him. And just to place why we're talking about criminal justice in the context of an elections 2020 class, it should be fairly obvious, but race and criminal justice, uh, partly because of what happened earlier this year with the murder of George Floyd, we're talking about his birthday today, um, and just frankly, the ongoing struggle around police brutality, white supremacy, and criminal justice um, have become major issues of the election as we've been talking about. And so having somebody who has spent his life working on criminal justice issues, we think is very relevant to be thinking about now exactly two weeks before the most important election of our lives. Um, so Zachary Norris is the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, which is an organization that has been around for more than 25 years, founded by um, Van Jones, uh, along with others. Um, but Zach has been the direct, executive director for the last seven years. He is the also, Zach is also the author of a really great book everybody should check out called We Keep Us Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. He's also the co-founder and co-creator of Restore Oakland, which was a more than $20 million community advocacy training center building in Oakland that um, is allowing people to come together, engage in restorative justice, also transform local economic and justice systems and make safe and secure future possible, futures possible for themselves and their families. Zach also co-founded Justice for Families, which is a national alliance of family-driven organizations working to end our nation's youth incarceration epidemic. Um, prior to creating both Justice for Families and Restore Oakland and leading the Ella Baker Center, he helped to build California's first statewide network for families of incarcerated youth, which led to the effort to close five youth prisons in the state pass legislation to enable families to stay in contact with their loved ones and defeat Proposition 6 several years ago, which was a really destructive criminal justice ballot measure. More recently, that work that Zach started many years ago resulted this year in maybe the most enormous victories that we've seen so far on criminal justice in the state of California. This year, Governor Newsom has announced that all youth prisons are closing in the state of California. And Zach can tell you how when they started that fight over a decade ago, people thought that was crazy. But Governor Newsom just did announce that huge victory for the El Baker Center. And they also led the passage of the really historic Racial Justice Act that was just signed into law um, that Zach can tell you is the first of its kind in the country and that uh, commits the state to reduce racial racial bias in sentencing. But he can tell you a lot more about that. I just want you to know that they've led some enormous victories even recently, and thus not surprisingly, 
Um, Zach has won all kinds of awards. His book, We Keep Us Safe, was praised by Ford's, the San Francisco Chronicle, Boston Globe, and Kirkus Reviews. Um, Zach, is, Zach is a graduate of Harvard University as an undergrad and NYU Law School. Um, he's also a graduate of the Labor Community Strategy Center's National School for Strategic Organizing in LA, and he was a 2011 Soros Justice Fellow. Um, he's a recipient of the American Constitution Society's David Carliner Public Interest Award in 2015, and he's a member of the 2016 class of the Levi Strauss Foundation's Pioneers for Justice. So it's a really busy time, and Zach, thank you so much for spending time with us today, and welcome. Um. Thank you, Saru, uh, and thank you, uh, Michael. I appreciate the invitation. Um, Saru forgot to mention my greatest honor um, is being her partner. Um, and so there's a, a bit of a nepotism happening um, on this uh, call, but that's okay. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and get right into this presentation. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, reimagining what uh, public safety could look like. Um, and we're going to talk about the impact of how we think about um, safety on our democracy itself. And um, these are uh, anxious times. These are times when we are, you know, just days away from an incredibly important election. Um, wildfires across the state of California, um, folks inside their homes um, due to COVID. Um, and I don't have to explain that to you all, but I, what I wanna offer and start with is just a reminder that we can um, find safety. Um, and so I would offer and ask that people take a moment to just recall a time when you felt safe. Um, and if you feel so inclined, you can put it in the chat. Um, and if you, like me, are um, still in your anxiety, you might just want to take a breath or two with me. So I'm going to just take a breath in and take a breath out. Take a breath in and take a breath out. Um, and I can't, uh, my technological skills are limited, so I'm not gonna be able to look at the chat and present to you. So I'm gonna ask that if you're putting something in the chat, you know, check out what's in the chat. Let's marinate on that. Um, but I wanna get right into the presentation and we will come back to that thought about a time when you felt safe. Um, so this is Ella Baker. Um, we are named after Ella Baker. She was a brilliant black woman. She was a leader in decades of struggle. Um, she believed in the power of everyday people to make change and she organized with students and sharecroppers. Um, she held folks accountable. Um, she didn't suffer fools lightly. She believed in gender justice and economic justice and racial justice. And she believed that we could transform this country. And we try to build upon her legacy to follow in her footsteps by advancing what we call a books not bars, jobs not jails, healthcare and housing not handcuffs agenda. The Ella Baker Center was founded in 1996 by Van Jones and Diana Frapier. Um, and one of the first campaigns we worked on was to uh, challenge state violence. 
Um, the San Francisco Chronicle in April of 1996 said that Aaron Williams died of what they called sudden in custody death syndrome. Now you might be confused by that term. What could sudden in custody death syndrome mean? You might be confused because there is no such thing. There is no such thing as sudden in custody death syndrome. They didn't mention that Aaron Williams had been hogtied. They didn't mention that they unloaded three cans of pepper spray into his face. They didn't mention that he had been kicked repeatedly and left to die in the back of a San Francisco Police Department van. They didn't mention the past record of Officer Mark Andaya who had been booted out of the Oakland Police Department. They mentioned none of those things in the, in the reportage uh, about the death of Aaron Williams. But the Ella Baker Center did mention those things. We did go to the San Francisco Police Commission time after time and we grew in our numbers and our strength and we were able to get Mark and I fired from the San Francisco Police Department, which was basically unheard of um, in that moment in the mid 90s. And it was a huge victory and a harbinger of what was to come in terms of the Alabaker Center, in terms of pushing for victories that many people didn't believe um, was possible. Um, but when I was um, growing up in Oakland, California, I wasn't thinking about racial disparities or state violence. Um, I grew up in, uh, what seemed like a place like this. This is Oakland, California, right? This is by the lake. Um, I was born in San Francisco. We moved to Oakland when I was a week old. I like to say it was a week too late because I, I love Oakland just that much. Um, Saru makes fun of me. Um, you know, uh, I was pretty sheltered being light-skinned, African-American, um, going to Catholic school, K through 12. Um, a lot of the disparities and a lot of the inequality quite frankly, was not lost on me, but um, didn't impact me in the same way that it impacted some of my own family members. And so at Harvard, as an undergrad, each, came, each time I came back from school, I would find that, you know, one summer, a friend of my brother's had been shot and killed around the corner from our house. Another summer, uh, one of his friends was homeless. And, um, and I also just started to think just how differently young people were treated, often for doing some of the same things. So at Harvard, if you got in trouble with drugs or got into a fight, you were given counseling, you were given a semester off at worst, you were always, it was always clear that you were more than your worst mistake. And I saw family and friends locked up for doing some of the same things. And so that is really what led me to an interest in working at the Ella Baker Center and um, started me on my journey of thinking about the history of this country and the history of Oakland. Um, and I was just doing a presentation with the Southern California Association of Nonprofit Housing. Um, so I was talking a little bit about housing. This is a map of Oakland and Berkeley. It shows the redlining that um, designed and inscribed particular regions of Oakland as being um, places that were no-go zones in terms of loans, where people couldn't find a loan to improve their homes. And, and many years later, some 70 years later, you'll find that that same map overlays with the map of where foreclosures happened in the city of Oakland and Berkeley. Um, I almost lost my house myself to the foreclosure crisis. Um, my, my dad uh, and I bought a house and we were, uh, underwater on our mortgage and I was ready to give up the house and my dad said you know you fight for other people 
you better fight for our house. So I have my, my marching orders. Um, Saru and I um, organized, we sent letters. Um, we even did a protest outside of Goldman Sachs, which Goldman Sachs has this like hundred story building in San Francisco. And there were four of us doing the protests in this giant plaza in front of this building. Goldman Sachs owned the Litton, the Litton Loan Servicing, which is the company that was kind of doing us dirty on our, uh, on our loan. So we had our signs and we were holding up them up as high as we could, but they were never as high as that big ass building that we were in front of. And so we went to the front door and the security guard um, like put one foot in, in, in front of the door and sort of opened it and said, what would you want? What do you want? So we handed them a, our demand letter that said, you know, we want a, a Obama hemp modification, et cetera. And I'm sure he, 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 he said he was going to deliver the letter. I'm sure he delivered it to the trash can. Um, Sarah and I went to lunch thereafter, and we got a call. And the call was from somebody from Litton Loan Servicing saying we would, in fact, get uh, Obama HAMP modification by uh, that Tuesday. And sure enough, we did. We were able to save our house. Um, what happened was the, the protest wasn't so super successful, but we had been calling and asking people to call his office. And um, Matt Nelson at Cause Husha Just Cause managed to get the cell phone of the VP at Litton Loan Servicing. So he was getting all of these calls while we were having this unsuccessful protest. So the moral of the story is direct action gets the goods. We were able to save our home. But unfortunately, um, other folks in my family lost their home during that same crisis. It became the largest loss of black wealth in the history of the country and was one of many indicators for me of like, what the hell is going on in our country? And by that time, I was somewhat active, but um, I started to think about even before then, like we proclaim to be a leader in the world, um, even though we're a small percentage of the population, but what do we actually lead in? We have 4% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the folks who are incarcerated um, in the world here in this country. We have 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's carbon emissions. And so the way in which we have treated people and the planet as disposable um, is evident. In these statistics, it is evident in new statistics that we now have nearly 25% of the world's COVID deaths. Um, and many people are seeing 2020 as sort of an aberration. And I would submit that 2020 is more of a culmination. It is a culmination of um, a history of wrong thinking about um, what democracy is and what actually makes us safe. Um, and so sometimes I have been prone to saying, you know, I think we've forgotten what public safety means. But I think the, the real truth of the matter is probably that we just have never gotten it right in terms of what public safety means. Um, this quote is from Teddy Roosevelt, who is a president of the United States. And he said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every 10 are. And I shouldn't like to inquire too, clo too closely into the case of the 10th. Now this was responding to a motto that animated the expansion of the country that the only good Indians are the dead Indians. And it had an impact, not just in the 13 colonies, but all the way to California, across these United States where the genocide of Native Americans from 1846 to 1873 roughly um, accounted for a loss of, I believe about 80% of the indigenous population in California, 80% y'all. 
Um, that logic still informs how we think about governance. Grover Norquist founded the Americans for Tax Reform in 1985, and at the urging of President Reagan, he declared, I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. Now, this idea of small governance is really, in my mind, a misnomer. I think a more accurate way to describe the last 40 years of American history and our model around governance, a bipartisan model, I would add, is that the only good government is a death government. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that is a stark way of saying things. I mean that um, all of the things that accelerate the morbidity and mortality of black and brown people, not just in this country, but around the world, are the things that are funded you know, at extreme levels. So 53 cents of every federal dollar goes to the military. Millions of incarcerated people, um, and that number has climbed from 1980 to, to, 20, to, to now, effectively. Um, funding for police here in California up some 227%. Across California, 294% here in Alameda County, 269% in Oakland. So the lion's share of resources um, go to policing on, at the municipal level, not just in Oakland, but city in cities across the country, right? And as Reverend um, William Barber says, these are just sort of like the most overt statistics, right? These are the things, the policing and prisons that accelerate the morbidity and, uh, and mortality of black and brown people, of, of, of poor people as well. Um, but that's not even counting what he calls the death measures on the down low, right? And that that refers to a lack of health care. So each time we've seen a recession in this country, you know, policing and prisons have continued to get funded, but health care has been cut. Housing has been cut. Employment has been cut. Um, and so for every, I think he said, I'm going to get the statistics wrong, but you know that for every so many people who don't have health care, a certain number of people will die. Some 700 people die um, from poverty. Um, and these are statistics that are a day, as I understand it. And these are statistics um, that were pre-COVID, right? And so post-COVID, these dynamics have gotten even um, more stark. Um, and I think they begin to explain a phenomenon that um, would be inexplicable if we're just thinking through the logic of the criminal court system, because the logic of the criminal court system really focuses uh, our attention on crime in the streets rather than crime in the suites of power. It focuses our attention on crime on the corner rather than crime in the corner offices. Um, and crime is actually at historic lows generally, but our anxieties are at historic highs. And that is because um, the things that there is a difference between crime and what the criminal court system focuses on and overall harm, which is a much larger um, in, uh, circle, right? And there's some Venn diagram among those two circles, but harm is a much larger animal. It encompasses harms associated with climate change and inequality. Um, it encompasses harms associated with the opioid crisis, which was approved by the FDA, right? So the, the, the corporate entities have not been held accountable for the harms that they have caused. And there are these architects of anxiety, our president being one of them, who I 
number five, number 45 being one of them, I'm hesitant to call him our president, right? Number 45 being one of them who really stoke divisions in our society, who blame the folks on the corner, who um, uh, enact and put forward what I call the he keeps us safe lie. So the book is called We Keep Us Safe, and I believe that's the sort of truth of the situation. But the he keeps us safe lie is the lie that the architects of anxiety tell. The architects of anxiety are using an abusive lie because what do abusers do? They say to the person that they are abusing, don't trust the people closest to you. Don't trust your girlfriend. Um, don't trust your neighbor. Don't trust your mother. Um, only trust me even as those abusive people are causing the harm inside the home. And inside the home that is this country, the, the president is doing the same thing. He is saying, don't trust your neighbor around the block. Don't trust your neighbor at the border. Don't trust your neighbor in distant lands. Only trust me. Meanwhile, he is hiding the harms that are ever present from ongoing state violence. He is bringing those harms. He is hiding the harms associated with climate change and inequality. Um, and so, we reject those lies, right? And I would um, ask that we, again, just take a breath because that's heavy. Um, and if you want to, you can just say, um, no more of the lies and just let it out. No more of the lies. No more of the lies. And no more of the lies. I'm gonna take a breath. Um, because fear is a liar and that, um, that reality is not the truth. The truth of the matter is that we know what keeps us safe. And so if we go back to that um, chat, if we think about that time that we felt safe, um, I would venture to guess that many people put something in the chat about um, a time when they were in relationship with folks they cared about. Um, I have heard folks describe, you know, being in a faith community or being with family, be it biological or chosen, being in a, a study group where folks were challenging um, uh, patriarchy and challenging um, racism and really finding agency to push forward a different vision of, of what's possible. Being in relationship is really fundamentally tied to what actual safety is. But if I ask you to think of the term public safety, you might think of a courtroom, you might think of prison bars, you might think of handcuffs. Our notions of public policy and public safety are fundamentally distanced from our notions of uh, our felt understandings of what safety is. And so our criminal court system is really divided um, and designed on in, in an adversarial way. And so the person who's caused harm on the left, the person who's been harmed on the right, are separated. Um, the state represents one of those people, supposedly. Um, but neither folks um, have good outcomes with this process. People who go through the criminal court system um, more often than not recidivate. Victims report very low satisfaction rates with the criminal court system. And um, the community is really largely outside of um, the circle of concern. So when um, the family members of victims say, hey, we want a different process in this case, prosecutors by and large never listen to them. And they completely ignore them. And so um, I wanna submit that punishment doesn't equal accountability. That um, punishment is about harming someone who has caused harm, 
Accountability is about acknowledgement and real consequences. And in order to actually um, hold someone accountable, you actually have to be in relationship with that person, right? Because you have to know that they understand the harm that they have caused, and you have to be able to see th that they have made amends for those harms. So um, that requires being in dialogue with someone. And one of the ways to do that is to use restorative and transformative justice. Restorative justice really flips the script on that traditional dynamic. It um, learns from the wisdom of indigenous people, um, uh, not just in the US, but uh, around the globe, uh, how people have uh, come to resolve conflict. Um, and it puts the people who have caused harm, the person who's been harmed, uh, at the center of the circle. And those who support them are surrounding them. And basically, the person who's caused harm in, in an individual context um, is asked to think through and develop collectively with the group an accountability plan um, to make amends for the harm that they have caused. And um, the great thing about this is that it is a true win-win-win. You know, a lot of times people say win-win and it's really disguising a win-lose. Um, but this for me is a real win-win-win. And what do I mean by the triple win? So one, the person who's caused harm less likely to recidivate having gone through a restorative justice process. Two, victims report much higher satisfaction rates with restorative justice because they can see the accountability that has occurred. They can feel it. And three, it's a win for the community because everybody is a part of it. And fundamentally, restorative justice isn't just about an individual process. It can be about a community and collective process. Because what we are seeing right now is that it isn't primarily the folks on the corners or the folks in the streets, but it is the folks in the corner offices and the suites of power who most need to be held accountable. And by developing these process where we are coming together to think about how do we solve thorny situations, how do we really hold people accountable, we're developing that muscle to effectively hold people in power accountable as well. And so that for me is a real win-win-win. Um, and restorative justice is something that we are embodying in this new space that Saru mentioned called Restore Oakland which she can take a ton of credit for because we fundraise together, we work together. Um, it's a joint initiative, the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, the Ella Baker Center, Cause of Who Suggest Cause, um, uh, and Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth Community Works. Deanna Van Buren is an architect who designed this amazing room that you're looking at. This is the restorative justice space at Restore Oakland. And what we're trying to do is paint a different picture, right? Because when people think of public safety too often, they're thinking of punishment and prisons and policing. And we want people to think of um, restorative justice rooms. We want people to think of um, economic opportunity. We want people to understand that restorative justice is part of the key path to actually addressing harm, to moving away from punishment and moving towards real accountability. And as I've said, it works not just on the level of individuals, but really on the level of uh, inside of workplaces, inside of homes, um, with at the level of nations through truth and reconciliation processes. Um, so that is what we have tried to bring together in this new building called Restore Oakland. It's an 18,000 square foot building. 
It houses a dedicated space, which you just saw for restorative justice, economic opportunity in the form of a restaurant and worker training programs. And then the most important thing, it houses some damn good organizing um, so that we can hold uh, elected officials accountable to this vision of books, not bars, jobs, not jails, healthcare and housing, um, not handcuffs. And um, it is open, it opened in 2019. We've been doing some amazing work even in the context of COVID. Um, and it's indicative of how we can actually address harm. But I wanna tell you a story um, because I think I have enough time um, about Richmond, California. Um, Richmond, California uh, at the turn of the century had one of the highest uh, per capita murder rates in the country. And this story for me is about how we prevent harm in the first place. The city council was up in arms. They had a, a big meeting in 2005. Um, they brought the police, they brought everybody and they were like, you know, how, is, how are we gonna turn the corner on this? Um, people are afraid to go outside. Um, this is not acceptable. Um, Devon Bogan came as a former director of the mentoring center in Oakland and he said, I wanna do a mentoring program for the young men who are believed to be responsible for 70% of the homicides in the city of Richmond. <clears throat> and most people were skeptical, but because the city had basically tried all of the punitive measures, they had tried to lock up as many people as they could, they had threatened people with criminal sanctions, um, it really wasn't moving the needle. And so they decided to invest in this program. Um, the, the thing that the media picked up about the program almost immediately was that there was a monthly stipend for these young men. And the media picked up the story and said, wait a minute, Devon Bogan, let me get this right. You are paying people not to shoot each other, right? That was this sort of line of the media. Like, how is it in, you know, in this meritocracy that is supposed to be the United States? Wait, you're paying people to not shoot each other. Um, but despite the media pushback, um, the, the results were um, resoundingly positive. Um, it did include a monthly stipend. Um, but it also included travel opportunities for this young men. It, it also Im included um, mentorship opportunities for these young men with formerly incarcerated um, folks who could relate to them and were providing the kind of guidance that was actually relevant to their experience. And the most important thing um, that was the, the biggest sort of flip of the script in terms of this program was that when Devon first started it, he said to these young men, everybody in this city is seeing you as a problem. I wanna ask you what you think is the solution and I wanna provide these kinds of supports to help us get there. Um, and through that shift and through actually engaging people and actually moving folks from feeling isolated to feeling as part of the solution, um, it was not just true that the walls between these young men came down, but really the walls across the city of Richmond came down and violence dropped precipitously. Um, an 80%, I think it was, reduction over some eight years. Um, uh, mothers and grandmothers able to take their uh, kids and grandkids um, to the park. Shopkeepers able to keep their stores open. Um, 
And so it was a huge difference for the city, not just for these young men, but really for the life of the city as a whole. And um, I wanna offer that it really is reflective of the way we need to think differently about public safety as a whole. Um, and offer that this is our moment of opportunity. And you might be like, who are all these white folks? Um, and um, these are folks celebrating the end of World War II. Um, and on the right, you'll see Eleanor and uh, FDR. Um, and I'm thinking about the end of war, partly because I'm thinking about the beginning of war. I'm thinking about the threat of civil war that we, uh, I believe, are um, faced with in this moment. I'm thinking about um, you know, the number of lives lost due to COVID, over 200,000. Uh, we haven't seen this uh, level of loss of life, I don't believe, in this country since the Civil War, where some 750,000 people died over a four-year period. Um, and so as we think about what's going to be necessary, um, I think we are going to need to um, be courageous. We are going to uh, need to really think about how do we not just get past this moment of uh, creeping fascism in the country, which is something that they were faced with at the end of World War II, but also how do we uh, stay beyond it and never move back to this moment in the, in the country's history. And what I wanna offer is that um, these two folks had an idea about that, that social movements um, within the Great Depression were pushing them to think about. Um, and so FDR was actually thinking about a second Bill of Rights and Eleanor Roosevelt was pushing a second Bill of Rights that would include a right to work. It would include a right to housing. It would include a right to healthcare. It would include a right to education, right? And so when we talk about books, not bars and jobs, not jails, healthcare and housing, not handcuffs, that is really resonant with this idea of a second Bill of Rights really resonant with the universal declaration of human rights that Eleanor Roosevelt was so instrumental in, in moving forward. Um, but I wanna recognize that, you know, a lot of those visions of human rights and the second Bill of Rights feel far away in this moment. They don't necessarily feel close to where we are. Um, and I think it's okay to, to grapple with that reality. Um, but I don't think it's okay to dwell in it because I believe we have a responsibility to our ancestors. And um, I often take breaths um, during the middle of the day. Sometimes I take two minute naps. Um, and during those naps and during those breaths, I think about that my ancestors behind me. And I think about beautiful people like you to the side of me. And I think about a vision of a different world in front of me. And I think about um, what courage really means. And I would offer that courage isn't so much about, um, you know, doing the thing the first or being the first. Um, it's about surrounding yourself with the right people and finding um, courage through common action. And I want to 
tell a story about that. Um, and I'll end um, with this story. When I um, first uh, started work at the Ella Baker Center, um, I was that kid who had went to Harvard. I was that kid who, um, you know, did really well in school. I was uh, fundamentally a people pleaser, right? Um, I got all of the awards in eighth grade, right? You can imagine me a little light-skinned kid with a big um, high-top fade. That was more of a curly high-top fade because I'm light-skinned and um, my, my hair is, is kind of curly. And I was in eighth grade really just trying not to be noticed as they called award after award after award. And I seemed to get all of them and kept going and sitting down and tried not to be noticed. Um, I didn't notice then um, the disparities that were uh, prevalent even in that awards. Um, you know, they talk about Oscar so white, it was like eighth grade graduation so white, so Zach, right? Um, I got all of the awards. I was the lightest skinned kid in my predominantly African-American Catholic school. And so these disparities, as I have mentioned, I started to think about differently as I got to Harvard. And that's kind of what led me to work at the Alla Baker Center. But I was still that same little eighth grade kid when I found myself as a law school student intern. And I started to surround myself with people who were doing different things. They were saying, we need to stop this super jail for youth from being built. And this was around the turn of the century. And the super predator mythology, the welfare queen mythology was very present in the mind of legislators. Um, they were doling out money to expand juvenile halls in Alameda County in 2000, wanted to build what would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country. And so again, the L. Baker Center said, no, we're not going to let this move forward. And so we waged a campaign where we would go to the Board of Supervisors, we would, you know, um, do poetry slams right in the middle of their meetings. Um, we would, you know, take up all the public comment time. And um, I even did my first poem um, at a Board of Supervisor meeting. It was my first poem and it was my last poem because it was really awful. Um, but the best thing about bad poetry is that it's still good protest, right? Because you're still taking your two minutes and even if they're trying to close their ears, you, you took your two minutes, right? Um, so we were doing all we could, but the end of the summer was coming and we knew that they were going to vote for this massive expansion of the juvenile hall in Alameda County, despite all of our creativity and our protests. And so we were at a staff meeting at the Ella Baker Center, and there were just about eight of us. And the question on the table was, who is willing to uh, get arrested in order to stop this super jail for youth from moving forward? And I you know, started to see other people like raising their hands. Some people were raising their hands like really high in the air, like I'm ready to do this, whatever it takes. Um, and, you know, despite myself almost like my hand started to go up a little bit as well. And I'm like looking at my hand like, but it was too late, right? So I have volunteered myself to be a part of this civil disobedience. And the, the supervisor meeting came on a Tuesday. Um, the we had you know done of our all of our speeches van jones was doing his van jones thing we were all lined up the, the folks who were supposed to get arrested next to this banister and the banister really divided the whole room right the the supervisors sit up on high and their cushy chairs it's like they have all the power then there's this wooden gate and then everybody else is sort of in the cheap seats and so we were going to cross this banister to say, no, the people have the power. 
we cannot let this stand. We are not going to let you um, uh, basically pres prescribe the future incarceration of black and brown youth in Alameda County. And so the signal was supposed to be this, right? So we're lined up, I'm kneeled down next to this banner, banister, and when Van put up two fingers, then that means I was supposed to cross through the banister and go and sit down. And somehow I had managed to kneel right next to the banister. So logically, I was supposed to be the first person to go through this banister. Now, I could see Van talking, but I couldn't hear him because my heart was beating like 10,000 miles a minute, right? Um, and so he's, his mouth's moving, but no words. But then I see that signal. And my knees were locked into the ground. And it was um, like I was supposed to be doing a sit-in, right, on the other side of the banister, but I was like I was doing a sit-in against the sit-in. And so my knees just stayed permanently locked. And thankfully, you know, Harmony Goldberg went right by me. And then another person did, and it snapped me out of it. And we all went and we sat down, we chanted. Um, and they ended up arresting us. They took us to Santa Rita Jail, um, which was a turning point in my life. Um, you know, I, I suspected in my naivete that, you know, we had protested, we had sat down, we had um, exercised, you know, uh, our rights and the, 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 the tradition of the civil rights movement. I expected that they would see the light, they would change their vote, and by the time we got out of jail the next morning, it would all be done. Um, that is not what happened in the civil rights movement. It is not what happened in this um, campaign. Um, but what we decided, a fellow intern and I, is to take a semester off despite the fact that the Board of Supervisors had went into closed session and moved forward with the vote for the super jail. Anyways, we didn't give up. We kept putting pressure on one particular supervisor who was up for re-election that fall, and we got her to change her vote. She was a swing vote. We were able to drastically reduce the size of the expansion. We were able to get them to move it to San Leandro rather than Dublin. Um, and so we were, had this really tremendous success for its time. Um, we went on from there to challenge the state-run youth prisons, as um, Saru talked about. We closed five of eight youth prisons, and the governor just recently signed a bill to close the remaining three state-run youth prisons across California. Um, a lot of folks contributed to that victory, and it is a huge victory. But it would have never happened if you know folks hadn't said, damn the odds, forget what we see, forget, you know, what seems to be the present reality, right? Because when we were, you know, thinking of ourselves as a beacon of light, but we were holding that little match and it, we, it felt like a tidal wave was coming out of us, right? But it turned out that when we stopped that super jail for youth, it was heard as far as Louisiana and Baltimore and places across the country, there started to be this movement to end youth incarceration. And now there is this movement to end incarceration, period. And so I would submit to you um, that, as Ella Baker said, give light and people will find the way. I would submit to you that we have a duty and a responsibility um, to not be people pleasers, but really to build people power. So let's not be the people pleasers that plays it. <laughs> Let me try that one more time.
because this is how I want to bring it home for y'all, y'all. Um, let's not be the people pleasers that play it safe. Let's be the powerful we that keeps us safe. Thank you. I'm going to start by asking you to talk about a um, few key things, and then we can open it up. Sure. Um, but um, obviously this year, there's been a lot of policy moving. The Racial Justice Act was just passed in California, which I'd love you to talk a little bit more about what just passed. Yeah. Um, and then at the federal level, you know, President Trump has been taking a lot of credit for this First Step Act that Van was a part of. Can you tell us about that? And on the other side, the Democrats are ta also talking about a criminal justice reform bill in Congress. Can you talk to us about that? Just because we're talking about the elections, it'd be good to know what's happening at the state level with the Racial Justice Act and any other criminal justice policy reform. And then what is this criminal justice reform President Trump keeps uh, taking credit for? And on the other side, what are people calling for after the murder of George Floyd? Yeah. The Racial Justice Act gives folks an opportunity to challenge bias in their sentencing. Um, and, you know, you can challenge uh, bias in terms of the provision of housing. You can challenge bias um, in terms of employment. There is no uh, real right to challenge bias in um, sentencing, um, which, you know, has an impact, obviously, in terms of housing and employment and a whole host of other issues. And so um, it actually is not uh, true that it's the first time that it's happened. There's been something similar in North Carolina that was actually effectively repealed. Um, but we are really uh, uh, proud of this accomplishment and we are going to work to make it not just prospective, but also retroactive. So that's the next step. We got the governor to sign it. Um, the bill doesn't um, include folks who have been sentenced in the past, but we wanna try to build on that victory. Um, and speaking of building on you know, victories, I think Van and the folks at Reform Alliance and Cup 50 really regarded the First Step Act as that, as a first step to um, bring people, some people home from prison at the federal level as a bill to provide some level of, of dignity um, to women who are incarcerated. Um, it provides for the, the uh, mandatory uh, provision of uh, sanitary supplies for, for women um and you know tampons and 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 really basic uh uh issues of, of human dignity and um the bill has gotten pushed back um because it also um includes provisions around supervision um and i think from an abolitionist perspective um doesn't um uh jive with theories of abolition, which is around not increasing and, you know, not sort of uh, pushing the balloon down in one, in one area to see it pop up in another. And many people are very much concerned, and I think rightly so, about growing surveillance in different forms. So you might not find yourself in a prison cell, but if you are on ongoing ankle bracelet monitoring, et cetera, um, then that's not freedom either. And so, you know, this is something that I think all movements struggle with is how do we advance meaningful change in people's lives while keeping a vision of what's possible and what freedom ultimately means in our sights and a, a path that actually leads us towards that rather than a path that um, 
directs us to false solutions. And I think um, the, the Breathe Act is a, a bill that I think does a really good job of helping to bridge the two in terms of talking about reparations, in terms of talking about, <clears throat> in my mind, really shifting away from a framework of fear towards a culture of care. So it talks about, um, you know, leveraging um, policies contained within the Green New Deal or, or sort of environmental policies to bring resources back to communities. So moving from deprivation to resources, as I as I talked about. Um, it gives you know real um, benchmarks um, to to move away from this bipartisan infrastructure that has been built up over the past forty years because the um, the uh, crime bill was really Joe Biden's work right the ninety four crime bill um, and even the things that I think we would regard as you know uh, on on their face good things have turned out to not really meet the aims that they were proclaimed to, to, to move forward. So the Violence Against Women Act, I think is one of those examples where uh, it's about $270 million that go towards criminal court interventions and only three, $30 million that go towards housing within the Violence Against Women Act. And so housing is really one of the, if not the critical factor for helping folks um, move away from what many women and gender nonconforming folks are facing, especially in COVID, is violence and an inability to escape, right? And so the criminal court system has more often than not really cycled people into poverty, violence, and incarceration rather than providing avenues for, for real transformation of those situations. And I think the BREATHE Act begins to look at how do we divest from this framework of fear? How do we divest from uh, punishment, prisons, policing first uh, vision of safety towards actual investment in communities? Um, and I'll end by saying like, you know, to me, it's not rocket science. I look at one of the safest communities within Oakland. It's actually Piedmont. It's a separate city. They created their own city. It, they're not safe because they have like a ton of police or the best police force. They're safe because young people believe they have a future of themselves in front of themselves. They go to good public schools. Their parents have good jobs. So those those things that make uh, community safe, it's not rocket science. It's just really um, shifting a culture that has um, uh, not seen all of us as part of the public, right? So if we're going to take care of public safety, we have to take care of the public, and that means all of the public. That means all of us. So speaking of Joe Biden, um, Amy Allison came to speak earlier in the class, and students had a lot of questions about Kamala Harris and how we can really think about supporting her given her track record as a prosecutor. And, and Zach, I know you've had many decades of experience with Kamala Harris um, as a prosecutor and an attorney general in California. Um, I know that there have been a lot of challenges in the past, and now she's the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side, you know, and in many ways the kind of face and spokesperson for, for a woman of color leader, um, maybe the first woman of color vice president in the history of our country. So how do you think about that? Because I, I would think more than anybody else in this room, in this Zoom call, you have experience, like live experience, many decades of working on criminal justice issues with Kamala Harris 
as the prosecutor, as the attorney general. Uh, and now, you know, how are you thinking about, you know, supporting her? Like, can you tell us a little bit about that history and then how you're thinking about her in this moment? Yeah. Um, Kamala Harris is now fashioning herself as a kind of progressive prosecutor just really isn't true, um, unfortunately. Um, there are, you know, progressive prosecutors now, Chesa Boudin, um, uh, the, the DA out of Philadelphia, whose name I'm now forgetting, uh, Krasner. Larry, Larry. Yeah. Um, there are folks who are legit, you know, really trying to um, use that office to challenge uh, a history of criminalization and a move in a different direction. Um, that being said, I, you know, I think um, she's been moved. Um, and in, in my mind, uh, with national elections in particular, we're not really fighting for a candidate. We're fighting for better terrain to be fighting on. <laughs> um, and um, the terrain of uh, Donald Trump's, and you know, this is very, just me speaking, right? And so I don't know if there is a YouTube thing, but this is definitely just me speaking personally. But um, the the terrain of a uh, fascist president who is, um, you know, we all know who Donald Trump is. That terrain is not good. It means a lot of harmful impacts. Um, and yet we know that the architects of the crime bill were Joe Biden, were, you know, prosecutors um, across the country. And so we um, are clear that we are going to need to continue to pressure and to push um, to push these folks, um, not just on issues of criminal justice, but you, you all saw the election. It's like Kamala Harris was against fracking, but Joe, Joe Biden's for it. And so she's towing the party line and, and saying, you know, fracking's all good um, on the debate stage. And so I think we just have to continue to, to push, um, to understand that we are fighting for, for better terrain. We are fighting um, for democracy itself and or the semblance of bourgeois democracy itself um, with this election. And, um, and then we have to keep pushing um, and we have to push in the first hundred days, you know, folks like the Working Families Party, among others, are already starting to signal what are the things we need to push for in the first hundred days. Um, and to me, it's not just to move towards more progress, it's actually to save democracy itself. And so pushing for, you know, a different constellation on the Supreme Court, pushing for um, immediate change um, that can um, reverse levels of inequality that haven't been seen in, in, in a century are absolutely critical to our success because the right wing thrives on isolation and inequality and the things that have, have grown so much in the last 40 years as we've continued to lock up more and more people. I think people would love a little bit more, if you don't mind, just a little bit more sharing about what it was that she did as prosecutor that made her less progressive than others. Um, you know, she did what prosecutors do. She blamed the victim. She um, was, you know, talking about bills and, and initiatives to um, bring parents to court when their kids didn't show up for school, right? Um, this whole zero tolerance framework and dynamic. Um, she, uh, you know, was a prosecutor that um, 
did what prosecutors do. I mean, I don't know exactly how else to say it. Like, it's, I, I, I don't know that she was like worse than other prosecutors, but she, she wasn't going in the, against the grain. And I think that there are now more recently, after there's been this kind of bipartisan push for criminal justice, uh, for, I, I don't use the term criminal justice, for criminal, for changes in our criminal court system, um, then, you know, it's been become more popular. Then you had everybody from Newt Gingrich to Michelle Alexander from different polls, all saying, hey, we need to end mass incarceration. And as that change started to happen, you saw people kind of revising, especially people who have been heavily involved in the system, kind of revising their stances, but also revising their records to a certain extent. Um, and I just, I think that she's a candidate that can be pushed in a lot of ways. She, she and Biden are certainly um, uh, better candidates to contend with than the current folks. Um, but I think we should be eyes wide open about um, what we're facing and understand that the architecture that I described, that framework of fear, this massive prison building boom has been incredibly bipartisan right, has been absolutely a bipartisan affair. So if you expect to go to the polling booth and then, you know, just breathe a sigh of relief and be like, oh, good, we did that. I'm sorry, that's not what's going to happen. Not only because Donald Trump is, you know, threatening to steal the election, but quite frankly, even if we get a new administration in, they're going to be committed to the same policies that have led to historic levels of inequality, the largest prison building boom in human history, and so we are going to have to push them hella hard, you know, and we are going to have to understand who they are. We're going to have to build independent political formations that um, can fight either within the Democratic Party or and also outside of it. I think the Working Families Party, other formations um, are starting to kind of develop their, their muscle. And that's going to be absolutely critical because these neoliberals do not like us and don't care about us and do a better job of faking it but to me it's just that um and so that's where i'm at yeah um i do see several questions i'm just going to ask one more and then open it up and i see one that's related to the question i was about to ask but i'm going to ask this first because it has to do with the election in two weeks in a very key state which is florida and then and then we'll go to kate's question other questions that are related so um, first, I do want to ask you about Florida. Obviously, there was a proposition, there was a, a ballot measure uh, two years ago that was supposed to give felons the right to vote in the state yeah. of Florida, which would have formerly changed incarcerated election. folks. Sorry, excuse me, formerly incarcerated folks. Nope. Um, but then the legislature turned it around. Can you talk to us about what's happening in Florida since it's a key state for two weeks from now? Um, yes, so they... Uh, brought an uh, initiative, much like we have in California, the overwhelming majority of Floridians actually voted to restore voting rights for formerly incarcerated folks, um, hugely significant, especially for the state of Florida, undoing, um, you know, we talk about the history of this country, I didn't talk about the Black Codes, I didn't talk about um, Reconstruction, I didn't talk about the ways in which um, our democracy has always been shaped by exclusion, has always been shaped by um, seeing uh, people of color, black and indigenous people in particular as 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 less than um, and denying their franchise and their political power. Um, and so these voting rights laws go all the way back to that period. 
right? Um, if I had more time, I'll talk more about that. But um, Desmond Mead and others were able to move this initiative. And then, um, you know, they then uh, passed a law that said if you hadn't paid off all of your criminal court debt, that you wouldn't be able to vote. So effectively instating a new poll tax, and that is the law currently. There have been some movements to try to um, pay for folks' uh, criminal court debt to help people be able to vote in this election. Um, unfortunately, is not um, commensurate to the number, the 1.4 million people who are impacted by the passage of the law. Um, so, you know, it's gonna have an impact. Um, hopefully we'll still be able to overcome um, that form of voter suppression among other forms of voter suppression that we're seeing across the country. Um, and that does tie to somebody's question around Prop 17. So should I just take that one real quick? Sure. Um, so Prop 17, um, I haven't actually looked at as closely as I would like. So it restores voting rights for um, uh, people on parole. Um, and I voted for it because we, you know, people on parole should be able to vote. I think people who are incarcerated should be able to vote. Um, in I think Maine and maybe Vermont, like, you know, two of those very pretty homogenous states, you can vote while you're incarcerated. Um, so it's, it's really not a matter of, it's a, it's a matter of seeing people's humanity and their dignity and understanding um, that even folks who make mistakes deserve uh, a say-so in their future. And um, some controversy around all of these bills is, 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 you know, who gets left out, right? And there are bills that say, like, you know, people who were convicted of nonviolent offenses should be able to vote, but those who are convicted of more serious offenses should not. Um, I don't believe in that. Um, we push hard uh, in, in the words of Dorsey Nunn and the folks that all of us are none to try to maintain the integrity of including everybody because we believe that everyone is more than their worst mistake. Uh, that being said, like, you know, it's the political process and there are sometimes um, actors that are more powerful than us that will determine, no, this is my bill, I'm the author of it and this, this is how it's gonna play out. And so sometimes we then remove our support for the bill or sometimes we stay on. It's a hard calculus, but ultimately, um, we try to think about like, are we expanding the scope of who's seen as, as part of the human, within the circle of human concern as John Powell and others say. And if we're doing that, then we think we're doing the right thing and we, we may have to work to fight the next battle the next year. Um, so that may be some of the uh, controversy associated with Prop 17 in terms of who gets left out and who's included. Awesome. Um, Professor Cohen, do you want me to go through the questions in the, in the chat or would you like to? One of the questions that has come up, I mean, you, you mentioned directly like the, the need, you know, in the first hundred days to um, save democracy itself. Um, and a lot of the sort of options or ideas, but what, what does that look like to you? Like what, what would it mean to enact, you know, to pass through Congress and have signed by a president laws and ideas that would, um, save democracy itself. Um, I think that, you know, we, we read Astra Taylor's book, uh, Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone uh, for this, yeah. I think is an outstanding uh, work of 
of, of scholarship and of radical political thought. Um, and she has her, her own particular ideas, but I'm just wondering what you think some specific examples would be. And the students in particular are asking about uh, questions about third parties and how they might be included. Um, but just your ideas on what it would mean to actually save uh, democracy itself. Yeah. Um, well, first there's like, you know, fighting like hell to get on better terrain um, and, and voting from now to November 3rd. Um, there is then the period after that where um, the state vote counts will be tallied and people can do a lot of work. You know, California is a very blue state, but there may be controversy and attempts, as we understand it, for electors to falsify effectively the votes and bring to Congress a vote that doesn't represent the popular vote in their state. Um, so the electoral colleges are supposed to actually represent the, the count, right? And so there's work to be done to call places across the country potentially if um, some of those swing states are places where they're trying to stop the count, which we know um, the president may do. So really encouraging people to be be patient to understand it's not gonna, we're not gonna necessarily know on election night and that we are gonna have to push to make sure that every single vote is counted. Um, and then after the state count, it goes to Congress. And, um, and then um, there isn't really a referee um, in terms of like someone to say, okay, Donald Trump, you lost, now you have to leave. There isn't necessarily a precedent for a president who tries to stay. Um, and so there are a lot of different ways that we can be fighting um, to preserve democracy, both through the actions we commit and the, the things we omit from doing, right? So, um, you know, slogans like, uh, if democracy isn't working, I don't work, right? Um, or until every vote is counted, count on me to be out in the streets or count on me to, you know, withhold my labor. Um, so I think that um, those are, that's the kind of, from now to inauguration period ways of of fighting for that democracy that will will um, we will miss if we don't have um, and then from there um, and you know I'm not an expert in this, but I think we need to take immediate steps to address inequality and climate change um, and we need to take immediate steps to um, undo. Uh, you know, 40 years of vote packing, right? And um, and packing the courts, sorry, is what I meant to say. Um, you know, John, I think it was Powell who wrote a memo in the late 70s. He was a judge about how the right wing was going to take over. And that late 70s also coincides with the rise of the prison system. Um, it coincides with um, the rise of corporate power. Um, and the way in which they have been packing the courts year after year after year has to be undone. And we have to push as progressives to, um, to, to, to change the calculus and the dynamic. Um, so those are a few ways. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert. I think the Breathe Act is, is something that we should obviously be pushing for as well. Um, and then I think the last thing that we should understand is that what we do locally matters right? The, the, the rise of the conservative movement didn't happen with just congressional plays. They were taking over states. They were fighting at the state level. Um, what we do here in Oakland, what we 
do in the Bay Area matters. Um, our capacity to support um, participatory budgeting and different forms of really bringing people into the democratic process are going to be hugely important because I think the reality is people think of democracy like an every four year thing and we need to have people think of it as an everyday thing. And what are all the ways that we can do that we can be kind of promoting that vision. I saw Krithika had her hand up and also had a question in the chat. Do you want to come off a mute and ask you? Yeah, thank you, Professor. And thank you, Mr. Norris, for um, coming to speak with us today. I think it was really nice because I feel like it's so easy with everything going on to kind of become discouraged and just caught in this state of sadness. So I really appreciated um, the energy you brought today. But um, my question was, what conditions do you think are necessary to sustain the movement for um, prison reform and eventually abolition that may have been missing from other movements such as SNCC? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the first things to acknowledge is that the government used repression um, very intentionally and very violently to um, uh, impact Black freedom movements, um, what we now call the civil rights movement. Um, and I think that there was an exploitation of a difference within the movement, um, cleavages along the lines of patriarchy um, that, ha that were exploited. And so I see, you know, folks trying to develop their muscle of empathy and um, accountability and challenging patriarchy within movements and challenging um, heteropatriarchy and challenging a lot of the divisions that have um, been stumbling blocks for past movements. So that is a good thing. That being said, um, I think we're getting it as it relates to um, differences based on identity, but I don't know that we're always getting it as it relates to uh, differences based on ideology and politics. Um, and so you know, I'm thinking about this pro-democracy movement we need to build, um, where we are going to, some of those same folks that I like poo-pooed and said, you know, they don't understand and blah, blah, blah. Those are the folks we're going to need to work with y'all. So let me be clear that I sort of consider myself in a, a space among friends and, and colleagues, and so I can be honest. And I will be honest, even in dealings with them, but I think we have to still try to find common ground. And that means like, you know, um, I think about going to Harvard as an undergrad. There's a lot of folks I graduated with who I don't share a lot of political ideology with, but I think all of them that I know of still want democracy. They still want some semblance of democracy. They want to see transitions of power. And so I have been reaching out to those folks like, hey, you know, alumni that I haven't talked to in a long time, like, how are you thinking about this? Are you thinking about taking a day off at your law firm or at your tech company? And like, um, and so I would offer that in order to be successful, we have to be um, more empathetic around issues of identity, but we also have to get more sophisticated around how we deal with political difference and understand that, um, we're going to need to be better at it if we're going to be successful and to build a broad enough tent to um, really marginalize um, the upsurge in white supremacy and, and, and fascism in this country.
Thanks. It looks like Sam had his hand up and had a question in the chat. Um, yeah, thank you, Professor. Um, and thank you so much, Mr. Norris. It's been a really amazing lecture, um, really um, inspiring and also positive and not um, not just anxiety inducing, as you sort of mentioned earlier. Um, I, so I had a question about um, just from general experience when people use terms like whether it be abolition of incarceration, um, example being like defund the police, um, get rid of the punishment-based system. People sort of, some people tend to instinctively just feel afraid like, oh no, like you're getting rid of things that I think make me safe. Yeah. Um, so what is the, what is your tactic, tactic of speaking to those people who just instinctively feel like you're threatening their safety yeah. when you say things like like that yeah um i think that people first you know there's some level of education so that folks can kind of walk in other people's shoes and understand how policing and prisons have impacted communities of color and poor people i think there is also some level of education around how those same systems impact white folks right um so i think it's you're like four or five times more likely to be shot and killed by the police in the united states as a white person than you are in europe and other you know similarly situated countries and um and so that is not an easy question right um i think about the question that um Joe Biden got at the debate where um, Trump was like goading him to say, hey, say you're for law and order. You won't even say you're for law and order, right? Um, and part of what was at play, and I had a you know disagreement with another professor at Berkeley, Ian Haney Lopez around this, but I think he was right and I was right. And so I said, you know, I wish Joe Biden would have said, well, the reason why I'm not gonna say I'm for law and order per se, because um, communities of color, many folks, when they hear law and order, they think of white supremacy. They think of a long history of racial injustice. They understand the origins of policing. And I wanted him to kind of give like a background on, hey, this is why, you know, law and order may not be what you are thinking of, about it as white America. And Ian was like, yeah, but no, because, you know, law and order means something. And you know, maybe the presidential debate isn't the opportunity to, to shift consciousness around that. And so this is one of the things that I think can be hard as organizers, right? Sometimes we're put in places tactically where we see a victory in front of us and we may have to take shortcuts to get to that victory. And the question becomes, is the shortcut, shortcut worth it? Um, and it's not an easy question to answer. Um, and, and so your question isn't an easy question to answer. It's based on time, place, and conditions, right? And so the conversations that we have have to be uh, relevant to um, the type of conversation, right? So if you're organizing and you're in a community and you're doing that long-term work and you're able to do political education, then yes, right? But if you're out on the doors and you're knocking and you're like, hey, I need you to vote for this people, this person, because we're effectively fighting for a different terrain, I'm not expecting you to have that long, you know, that kind of long range conversation. Um, I had another thought about that, uh, but maybe it'll come back to me. Um, but, you know, that's kind of my general take is, 
um, having some grace for the fact that people are um, responding to that question in different ways and are, as you said, understanding what law and order means. Um, yeah, and my other thought comes back, I'll let you know. Thanks. Opioma, looks like you also had a question in chat. Do you wanna raise it? Can you ask it for me? It's really kind of loud in here. Sure. Uh, Obama writes, what connections can we make with the allegations of the GOP fake ballots and voter suppression and to anxiety and the criminal court reform, the false representation of popular votes? Mm. Do you want to say more, Obama? We don't mind. <laughs> okay. It, it sounds like what you're saying is that there's an attempt to uh, criminalize voters who might vote for Joe Biden. Is that is that essentially... Um, yeah, there's so many, there's so many different kinds of voter suppression happening in this moment. There's, you know, California and the, the fake boxes that the GOP set up. Um, and there's, you know, the overt, uh, threat of violence as people, as people of color, uh, as black folks and brown folks go to try to vote. Right. And, um, that has a long history in this country. Um, so in terms of making connections, um, some of the connections are historic in terms of like the, the rise of um, uh, the punishment system and prisons as we know it partly come as a result of trying to exclude black folks from the franchise. So black codes were laws that said that if you were found without work if you didn't have a work pass or uh they were they could uh, basically lease you out to a plantation um and so that convict leasing system has been described as worse than slavery um and that that history um led is those laws um from that period are the same laws that were being challenged in florida in terms of um challenging the exclusion of of formerly incarcerated folks from the the vote um, on a broader level, I think the idea that people can be seen as undeserving of rehabilitation, as undeserving of a second chance, um, is intimately tied to then the ability to exclude them from the franchise and the democratic process, right? And so to me, like um, the notion of how we get to safety is intimately tied to our our notions and understanding of democracy. In terms of how we can challenge uh, those dynamics, I think I see people already challenging those dynamics. I see people showing up um, in huge numbers to vote in Georgia and Texas already. And I think, you know, there's truth to that safety in numbers um, uh, ideology. Um, yeah, so those are some of the ways I see people really showing up to, to challenge voter suppression. So I'm not seeing other hands or questions, but I, I just want to follow up because there was a lot of comments in various kinds of comments in the in the chat about um, about the like, how does essentially restorative justice really work? Is it a real thing? Is it really possible to move away from the current system to something like that? So I wonder, Zach, if you could I mean, you talked about it kind of in an esoteric way. Could you give examples of where it's actually happened, where people yeah. have actually gone through that system rather than going through the criminal justice system as it exists? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'll give you a name of a few places. Um, Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, uh, New York, places uh, across the country are using restorative justice processes. Um, and in Alameda County, um, the district attorney is actually referring people to restorative justice processes. So rather than um, um, a person going through the criminal court system, basically they refer it to a nonprofit organization that then creates um, uh, a voluntary process. So both the person who's been harmed and the person who's caused harm have to agree to participate in that process. Um, but the numbers really speak for themselves in terms of lower recidivism rates, higher victim satisfaction rates. Um, and it works not just in, you know, um, less serious cases, but in really serious ones. So in San Francisco, um, uh, the district attorney is uh, referring cases for restorative justice that are more serious than Alameda County's cases. And there was a study done by Impact Justice that showed that recidivism rates um, were actually even lower and victim satisfaction rates even higher in more serious cases. And the theory um, is that in those more serious cases, the harm is more self-evident. The uh, um, It isn't confusing uh, about what the harm was. And so the, the accountability process is that much more clear. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about um, folks who have assaulted folks. We're talking about folks who have seriously injured folks um, in the Common Justice Program in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, in other parts of New York, they're expanding. Um, they are really challenging this, this dichotomy between victim and offender, right? And really showing that oftentimes the same people who have been hurt are then hurting others, right? And in order to interrupt that cycle of harm, restorative justice is a, a, a key vehicle. And so they're working with um, young men, often young men of color, who have been impacted by violence um, and interrupting that cycle through restorative justice processes. Um, the real question isn't like whether it works, it's a question of whether or not we will fund it. Um, so the program I mentioned in Richmond, California, uh, they get I think like a million dollars a year and the city policing gets like $60 million a year. So you talk to Devon Bogan, he's been talking to the Obama administration you know, everybody he can about really scaling up this this um, violence prevention program, which is separate from restorative justice, but indicative of the kinds of programs that actually work and are still seen as kind of boutique and fringe rather than um, the mainstay of what we need to move forward. And that connects me to the, the last question. And I want to say this. I think when we're talking about um, moving away from policing and prisons, an analogy can be helpful. And that analogy is that we have understood that we need to divest from fossil fuels, right? 99% of scientists agree, like fossil fuels are bad. We're gonna move to you know, renewable energy. Um, and when things first started, like solar panels were like, what is that? Or wind turbines, right? But over time, those things start to get scaled and they start to become part of the popular consciousness. And similarly, what we were trying to do with Restore Oakland was kind of put forward our first solar panel. And, you know, that, that sounds cheesy and it's historically inaccurate because restorative justice goes back eons. But at the same time, sometimes you have to like help 
you know, people visualize and see a different future. Um, and so with Restore Oakland, we're trying to say, hey, just as we needed to move away from this dead and dying energy infrastructure, so too we need to move forward towards a life-affirming, uh, care-centered vision of what community safety looks like. And I'm hopeful that we can start to build up and scale up some, some of those interventions across the country. All right, Professor Cohen, do you want to call on? I see Eric and Rithika with their hands up. Do you want to start with Eric? Uh, Eric, go ahead, please ask your question. Thank you. Um, hi, first of all, thank you for being here, uh, Mr. Norris. I appreciate everything you had said thus far. And I was just curious because earlier, I know you mentioned that a couple years ago, uh, the idea of um, closing down the youth prisons was or seemed radical to many. And now there's um, people who are pushing for the uh, incarceration to cease. And I was just curious if that fits in with your personal like overall goal or one of your main goals um, in the work you do now that you spoke of. And if so, or if not, like how does that compare to the overall goal of others who work alongside you? Yeah, um, I work with folks who are like uh, diehard abolitionists. And I work with folks who are, would regard themselves as criminal justice reformers. Um, and I believe that we do need to divest from uh, policing and prisons as kind of the first option as it relates to community safety. Um, the book I wrote, We Keep Us Safe, on Building Secure, Just and Inclusive Communities, um, describes, you know, one scenario in which I was like, I don't know, you know, um, this person um, uh, had killed both of his parents, his um, sister was fearful for her life. And I tried to put myself in her shoes um, and think about if one of my siblings killed my parents, and then um, I felt in uh, at risk from for my life as a result. And I thought about just how much I would not know my sibling. Because, you know, I've known them all my life and, and, and then they were to do something like that. That's not exactly how that um, scenario happened. There was a series of traumas and tortures that this um, person, James, went through that really um, impacted his mental health stability. Um, his family tried to get support um, time and time and time again. His, um, you know, uh, sister tried to reach out to the sheriff's office to let them know that she was fearful, fearful for her parents' life. Um, and so in some ways, that story is a story about the, um, the, uh, the failure of the criminal court system to actually keep us safe. Um, and at the same time, um, if I'm honest, I don't necessarily know um, what it looks like to um, at this moment think about a different um, uh, outcome for James and I describe in the book all of the different points up into that tragic incident where there was a whole host of different interventions that could have happened that had nothing to do with the criminal court system from school to employment to actually getting him mental health support um, so uh, I would regard myself as someone who um, is really pushing for a world without policing and prisons and believe that we need to fundamentally remake um, 
of public safety in this country. Um, and I'm also, <clears throat> you know, admittedly, like, what do we do with Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, like, um, uh, he is someone, and, and I say that in some sincere, with some sincerity, like, you know, here's a person who has committed all kinds of harms um, and who has all kinds of power. And in the process of transitioning to democracy, where he to, to, to try to maintain power and to try to continue to um, build a kind of white supremacist movement, um, you know, I, I think we have to really grapple with hard questions around what's the transition process. And I think abolitionists will tell you that it, uh, it's not an on-off switch. So Alex Vitali, who wrote The End of Policing, will tell you it's not an on-off switch. You don't go from like having police as sort of the dominant framework um, and intervention points to just then not having them at all. But you can think about like, who are the first responders? How do we begin to move to a different paradigm? And what are the structures much in the same way? And that's why I use the, the sort of climate as an example that we can think about moving away from a dependence on fossil fuels to a different in energy infrastructure. And I think similarly, we can do that in the context of community safety. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I appreciate the, the questions around abolition they are certainly pressing and how to talk about them and how to think about them. I, I would just, I, I, I want to get to student questions, but just on that note, I'd, I'd offer, you know, this, I'm sure you're familiar with this text, which is Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, yes. Gold Gulag, um, Prison Surplus Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California. And it's a history of the California prison system. And Ruthie really is one of the most prominent prison, prison abolitionists in the country. And she um, it was former geography professor here at UC Berkeley. She's in, in New York now. Um, but in her book, she describes, offers a definition of racism that Zachary, I would ask if you get your comments on, because I think it, it fits to the, the abolitionist horizon where she describes racism as, quote, racism specifically is the state sanctioned or extra legal production and exploitation of group, group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. Mm. So it's worth repeating here. Racism specifically is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-deferentiated vulnerability to premature death. Hmm. And by this, right, it is about that people of color live in unsafe communities. They live in toxic communities. They're subjected to uh, substandard medical care. They are given the worst voting conditions. Um, and for that, it, it offers this sort of explanation that, that abolition right, as you say, is not an on-off switch. It is a horizon. It is a way of approaching and seeking to mitigate and transform these state-sanctioned uh, exploitation of group-differentiated uh, exposure to premature death. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, you know, if you can talk about, like, in a sense, like, how abolition, you, you imagine abolition, what prospects you think uh, that particular movement uh, has in this moment and how it addresses this larger question of racism? Um, yeah, I think that when we understand abolition in that broader context, it, it really, um, for me, boils down to, you know, revolutionary change inside of our country. It boils down to the need for transformative change. Um, and in, in all the ways, right? So looking at um, that map that I showed of, of redlining and substandard housing that you mentioned, 
and finding ways to actually uh, right those harms, right? And that is what we call a truth and reinvestment process. And it's kind of a play on truth and reconciliation. It's a long way of saying reparations, but I think um, undoing racism as uh, Professor Wilson Gilmore defines it um, uh, is about really, um, shifting those dynamics and um, writing those harms. Um, I lost my train of thought. So um, come back to me on that. I'll, I'll come, I'll circle back to that question. Uh, no worries at all. Let's go to uh, Allison and ask her to unmute and ask her a question. Hi, um, thank you again so much for coming and speaking. You had really great things to say. Um, I, my question for you um, is kind of more just about like, well, like wording, I guess. Um, you talked a lot about like restorative justice. And um, I remember in a social justice class I took at my CC, my professor was um, very distinctual between restorative and transformative justice and how one kind of um, restorative being um, kind of restores um, to the situation before the crime occurred and is focused on the uh, perpetuator of the crime and the victim of the crime, whereas transformative justice kind of takes into like the larger um, social aspects of what might have caused that crime to occur. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to know like what your take is on the difference between the two and then if the work that you're doing actually is transformative, it's just a difference of words being used. But yeah, yeah. thank you. No, I really appreciate that question. Um, yeah, a lot of people say, you know, restorative justice, uh, well, you're restoring things back to the in unequal state that they were before. Um, you know, I take a longer term idea of restorative in that sense. And like, I'm thinking about restoring relationship. I'm thinking about restoring, um, uh, uh, as indigenous folks, a kind of uh, balance or a respect, you know, um, for for balance and a a, a balance uh, that has been broken, a harm that has been caused, and 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 bringing folks back into relationship. Um, you know, I think uh, there are elements of what we're trying to do at Restore Oakland that I do think are transformative in the sense that you know we are doing the restorative justice process, but we're also um, trying to connect people with economic opportunity, right? So you know, someone may have an aha moment like, hey, I caused this harm. This person is now up at night. They're, they can't sleep. I feel bad about that. But I find myself in the same, you know, economic situation that led me to snatch that purse or to to cause that person harm and, and take what they had. Um, and so I think in a certain sense, you know, we are uh, uh, pushing for transformative justice to not just sort of restore what was before, but also to look at the conditions that, that, that drove that harm in the first place. One thing I will say is that um, I think we abandon terms too fast on the left. And I think we give up ground on words too fast. Um, and by that, I mean, like there is a tendency for um, people to um, co-opt the um, the language and the words that we use, um, and so there's been this movement to kind of reimagine public safety, right? And um, some folks are reimagining public safety in the context of policing in ways that don't feel like really a real reimagination. It feels like sort of 
restoring trust to um, an entity that has been positively harmful and untrustworthy since the beginning of the country. Um, and so I get why people are wary of co-optation of the words that we use. At the same time, like I think we have to fight for a bigger we and we have to fight for the terms um, to, to mean what people think they should mean almost, right? And maybe that's partly where Ian Haney Lopez was coming from and saying, no, we should say like law and order, but also point out that Donald Trump has been breaking the law time and time and time again. In another context, I was saying, you know, I think we need to move towards a public health vision of community safety rather than a punitive one. And folks were like, well, public health is fraught with peril. You know, it is a history of the Tuskegee experiments on folks. It is a history of sterilization of women of color. Um, and yet at its face, like public health, sounds like public health, y'all. I'm like, so I, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a semantic question, but it's also um, in my mind, a question of how much space we try to occupy. And are we trying to lead the whole or are we trying to lead our little narrow space where we feel comfortable and we feel like the words that we're using are right on and are feel the, the, the most righteous. And I'm not saying that as a, I'm not trying to say that in a disparaging way, but I am trying to say it as a, as a sort of call to arms, like let's fight for a drastically different world, but let's also like occupy the space we need to win that world. And from my perspective, we need to occupy the space of like, we're the normal, we, we are going to really define these terms. We are not going to allow um, th that co-optation. And I know that's complicated, but um, that's a little bit of my rambling on that question. Uh, solid. Um, uh, Ritika, I think this we maybe uh, this is our last hand up, but we'll see where we are for time. But uh, Ritika, go ahead. Thank you, Professor. Uh, and thank you, Mr. Norris. Uh, I agree with the, what all the other students have said before me. This has been a fantastic presentation. Um, I have a quick question just about uh, the resources required to establish systems of restorative justice and how those compare to what is required to build this prison system that's growing and growing and growing. Um, yeah, what, what is required to establish, uh, just like you and Professor Jayaraman did, to establish a restorative justice system? Um, well, restorative justice in comparison to the cost of incarceration is actually really cheap from a monetary perspective. Uh, it's, it's much less expensive to, um, you know, do a restorative justice uh, process than it is to incarcerate somebody by, you know, on the order of magnitude of 10 uh, or more. Um, but, you know, that can be um, deceptive because I don't think we, by and large, want to frame these issues around um, economics and things being cheaper because it, it ends up like reinforcing kind of a dynamic that we want to avoid, which is um, uh, the value of people and the value uh, be, being sort of almost monetized. And I'm not uh, appropriately capturing all of the, the sort of pitfalls in that, but I will say that the cost of it is also the, the, the challenge of really shifting people's perspective um, and moving away from seeing folks as less than or incapable of redemption and rehabilitation. And that is the bigger challenge. 
really then the challenge around resources because as we've seen, as I hope I kind of illustrate it with some of the statistics, like it's not a shortage of resources that is preventing us from doing the right thing. It really is um, a, a system that knows what it's up to. And as, um, you know, as Professor Cohen was saying, and as um, is described in Golden Gulag, like there was an intentional uh, redirection of resources and the state surplus towards punishment um, as a primary uh, vehicle for um, ensuring social control um, and, and leveraging the resources of the state towards that end. So it's really about developing the political will to take care of people, um, all people, rather than, um, than not. And I think that's the bigger challenge. The, the reality is most of the interventions that we're calling for are much less expensive than, than locking people up. I'm not seeing hands. I'm going to ask you some closing questions, Zach. Um, can sure. you talk a little, I mean, you've been involved with the movement for Black Lives really since the beginning. I, I, I think students would love to hear, uh, if you don't mind sharing what happened on the Bay Bridge a few years ago, that would be great if you could share that experience. And then um, kind of how you've seen the movement evolve and particularly this year, you know, what hope do you have for the movement going forward? Um, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, as you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, movement for Black Lives was really building. Um, there were folks across the country who were taking action. Um, and I um, was able to take action in a couple of different uh, protests. Um, one to stop the um, BART trains from running on uh, Black Friday. Um, I think that was November of 2014 or 2015. Um, and then afterwards, um, with a collective called Black Seed um, to stop the um, traffic on the Bay Bridge. Um, and, you know, it was a powerful action. It was a demonstration of really trying to push for no more business as usual. And um, I think that we are going to have to continue to um, push in that direction. Um, this history doesn't have uh, a practice of respecting black lives. This, this country doesn't have a practice of, of respecting black and indigenous lives, and that's a, a real understatement. And so if we are going to move away from a status quo that um, devalues the lives of black and brown people and poor people in this country, we are going to have to take risks. So that's the sort of paradoxical thing about safety in this moment is that in order to get to safety, we are going to have to take risks. But the good news is that, you know, the risks don't have to always look the same. That isn't always about, you know, doing a big civil disobedience. Um, it can be about staying home and refusing to work. It can be about a whole host of, of different ways to contribute. Um, and I hope that each and every one of you will be thinking about um, what can you offer um, and what is your contribution um, here and now because we desperately need you. Like there is a moment that will impact the future of this country and the future of the world. Um, and all of us are going to have to think through like, what can we do? And the thing that I would close on is just, you know, is to say like, you don't have to be the most courageous. You don't have to be, um, you know, uh, 
the most out there. It's about finding people who can support you and doing the right thing. It's about being around folks who understand your vision of, of what's possible and who will support you in moving, moving it forward. So appreciate all of y'all for, for taking the time to, to listen to me. And I um, want to thank Professor Jay Raman and Professor Cohen for the opportunity as well. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks for taking time today. Really appreciate it. Right on. Y'all be well. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.